Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Hello, everybody. My name is Beth Fisher Yoshida. I am the Academic Director of the Master of Science Program in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution at the School of Professional Studies at Columbia University. I also have another hat. I am the co-executive director of a consortium at Columbia University, for short, called AC4, as well as the director of the Youth Peace and Security Program. It is my pleasure today to speak with my colleague, Jose Pascal de Rocha, who's known as Pascal. Pascal is faculty member in the Negotiation and Conflict Resolution Program with me. In addition to that, he's an accomplished mediator and researcher, and he also is um, a visiting lecturer at IESEG School of Management in France, a fellow with the BRICS Policy Center Global South Unit for Mediation in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. He has over 20 years' experience in crisis negotiations in volatile environments. He serves as a peace and development advisor to the UN and as a mediation expert with the UN Department of Political Affairs. He is a rostered mediation expert, with the OSCE and currently serves as a Senior Conflict Prevention Advisor to the African Union, a Senior Mediation Advisor to ECOWAS, a Special Advisor to the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network under the Chairmanship of Italy and the Commonwealth Network of Women Mediators under the Chairmanship of the UK Foreign Office. uh, Pascal also provides advisory services for U.S. Fortune 250 companies in change management strategies and intercultural communication, including leadership, virtual teams, organizational development, and intercultural communication. And obviously, because Pascal has so much time on his hands, he decided to write a couple of books. So we're going to speak about his books that he wrote today based on his years and years of experience. One is a handbook on international mediation. And another is a peer-reviewed book on political mediation and conflict resolution. So without further ado, and me continuing to introduce all the different things about Pascal, Pascal can also talk about himself as he talks about his work. Welcome, Pascal. Thank you, Beth. Pleasure being here. Great. So we have a finite amount of time, so we don't want to go through every year of your history and how you got to where you are today, although it is fascinating. I'm not saying it's not. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in international mediation, since that seems to be one of your areas of expertise. Mm, So I think uh, one of the entry points to the field of international mediation comes through my upbringing in various countries. So uh, I was born in Germany. I grew up in, uh, in most African countries and in Southeast Asia. So I think that background set me up for some kind of cultural flexibility and adaptation that I then used throughout my very first formative years in the in the armed forces, where I was pretty much throughout the early 90s after the fall of the war, uh, of the wall and the end of the Cold War, all the way to the 
mid 2000s, uh, I was in peacekeeping operations. So, and always in the front lines, trying to understand actors, stakeholders, the issues at hand, the context of the conflict. Um, and then later on, I realized that what I was doing was some kind of somehow linked to mediation because I, I did find myself sitting between different armed groups and the government or militant groups trying to negotiate different settlements uh, that either could lead to a ceasefire or to another type of agreement. But at that time, it wasn't very, you know, it was not so apparent to me that what I was doing was mediation. When I was uh, done with the armed forces, I realized that I'd like to study more and to learn a bit more definitely deconstructing what I've experienced in my 15, 16 years uh, of, 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 of service. And so I went to law school first, and through law school I realized that what I was doing was mediation, trying to bring uh, an agreement or some form of agreement uh, between two belligerent or more parties um, and have them figure out the way forward. Um, and then so I got excited about that opportunity, and so after my law degree, also uh, focusing on contractual law, how to write agreements, the language and wording of agreements. I realized what my practice is very, very important. Uh, you want to have uh, some wiggle room for the parties to feel comfortable, but at the same time, you want to make it as specific as possible for the implementation to happen. Um, and so later on, I then I specialized a bit more, not just on legal aspects, but also on language aspects. And so um, my terminal degrees were more focusing on linguistics and speech act, uh, which are then linked to you know how parties relationship uh, are built throughout the negotiation phases has an impact on how they then subsequently actually implement the peace process or the peace agreement. Um, and then in that time, I, I went back to, to providing my services either to the UN or um, other different um, uh, requesters of my, of my services. But I'd say cultural adaptation, um, language skills, and... Um, the patience to sit around different cultures to to see some form of agreement coming through um, helped me out in my in my field. And it's why I thought that when I was thinking about writing these books, it was actually something that was brought to me by by students who were interested in learning more about that specific aspect of international mediation. But also, I could see in the field there were a lot of things happening with mediation the way it was done in the eighties. Uh, the way it was in the 90s and 2000s with a changing contextual environment. Um, and clearly, I remember very well, it was in 2014, uh, I was attending a, uh, a UN uh, ceasefire mediation course, and there was a very um, well-known mediator, uh, Jean Arnaud, who's now a special advisor in Colombia. And he had a fireside chat, and so, you know, you can ask experts some questions. And I did ask him, I said, well... Uh, you were trained in the 80s to deal with armed groups with specific um, political demands or requests. Um, nowadays, in the 2000s, you have non-state actors and don't ha they don't always have a political formula. So how do you deal with this new hybrid environment? And he said, I don't know. Because the way we were taught, the way we were brought up was to deal with two parties, the government on one side and maybe on the other side, the rebel group or the opposing parties. And the rest will just ravel around. But in my reality, in the, the last mediations I did uh, since the mid-2000s were all involving multiple actors at multiple times. Um, so it was very multidimensional, and you were always embedded in what we call now hybrid warfare, uh, where you have you know conventional peacekeeping, peace enforcement taking place. You have the local population being the victims of that war. Sudan is a good case in point, but also Syria is a good case in point. 
and the international community is also involved. So they have a, you know, they have hybrid warfare on different scales. And on the battleground, you also have hybrid warfare because it involves cities, it involves villages, it involves not just a conventional battlefield. Um, so that I could not find any, uh, until now, any program, any course that actually offers uh, a mediation um, outlook in hybrid warfare environments. And that then brought me to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to just bring out my own experiences without them be the truth, but maybe give it a direction and see how we can move forward. And so far, because in t the two books I've uh, published, there are a range of case studies that also show you the increasing complexity of the cases. And the one you have just uh, under your wings, the Inter International Mediator Handbook has the Sudan mediations as a whole uh, in-depth case study. So even then you can see the increasing complexity and how the mediation is trying to also redefine its own um, ontology. Uh, whereas in the beginning you had mediation being used as something to settle a difference. Um, I propose that mediation is there to actually offer a safe space for new ways to communicate between the parties. And then whatever happens thereafter is then up to them on how they can settle their differences. But uh, I think that kind of genealogy has changed throughout the different um, cultural stages as well. Mm -hmm. So great. So it sounds like part of your purpose in writing these books was to advance the field because the current literature doesn't necessarily keep up with the complexity of what's really happening on the ground. And I noticed that in your international handbook, you spend a lot of time up front talking about preparation. And um, I know that in doing a lot of work on negotiation and uh, getting people to really pay more attention to negotiation preparation, because I say winging it is not a strategy, that when you're dealing with the complexity of what you're dealing with, tell a, can you speak a little bit more about the different ways in which you address preparation, because you have quite a few subcategories there. Yeah. So I think, and I've realized for myself that um, conflict analysis and being sensitive about the conflict drivers is, is key uh, to get into uh, into the, the spot. Sometimes, you know, so you don't have much time uh, to prepare for a mission. Uh, you don't have three months of research you can spend. Uh, you get your requests coming from uh, a desk officer of any of these international organizations, and then you sometimes have just three days, maybe a week utmost, to prepare a concise uh, plan of operation or concept of operation. So your conflict analysis has to be succinct. But everything also depends on the way you understand the conflict. And so even in this handbook you mentioned, the International Mediator, I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, for me there are three uh, uh, main uh, things that, that, that international mediation is about. It's about good management skills, uh, good people skills, and finally it's about good luck. Good management skills requires the mediator to also be a team leader. He or she needs not just to manage a team, which also requires him or, he or she to go around town and ask for money ask for funding the mission because you only get a three-week startup funding uh, but it's not enough but you need to you need the driver you need the interpreter you need to find maybe uh, different um, locations to house the different rebel groups or the stakeholders for some meetings so you need to be able to understand that um, you need to manage a team not just your own team but you also find in many cases that you go to the ground and you have eight other mediators and they also claim to have a mandate to mediate um, and you can't just refuse their help. So you also need to engage them, the insider mediator, the church, maybe who's on the ground, the traditional leaders, maybe an NGO who has the, the charisma and the gravitas to do that. So you also have to manage these different stakeholders. So 
team management, team uh, leadership is very important uh, that you have to cover as a mediator, and therefore preparation is key. When you do conflict analysis, you ask, for example, who are the other peace actors on the, on the field? What is their agency and what is their agenda? What are their capacities? What are the resources that they have? And you always link those elements back to the parties in conflict. Uh, how can they support the primary parties? How can they provide access to resources to secondary parties? How can they be used to bring in maybe tertiary actors that are at the outer rim of the conflict sphere, but who could be useful to maybe propel, provide incentives to move the entire thing forward? And that only shows up when you do conflict analysis. Um, you have to get good people skills. Um, certainly, once you get more expertise and exercise, you get a certain sense of maturity uh, and also a certain sense of, of, of uh, intuition and instinct about the people. But at the same time, if you do a little bit of profiling when it comes to the primary actor, certainly, you find out a lot more about them um, than meets the eye. So you need to understand what is the story behind the story. Um, everybody's propelled by a story why they are fighting. Either it's the government side, either it's the uh, militant group, the, the maybe terrorist group, if you may use the word. Um, so they always have a story to tell, and your job as a mediator is then to really hone in on these stories. Um, and you know Beth very well through um, CMM and different models that you have in this in this uh, uh, complex environment. Uh, you can then listen to those stories, weave them into the conversation at the mediation table, and use them to um, you know widen the entry points for further negotiations. And it only comes when you do preparation, conflict analysis. Uh, understanding where the actors are, and then really understanding what are the relationship between the actors. That is also part of the, the good people skill sets that you have to have. And finally, it's good luck. Uh, any intervention is a 50-50 thing. Um, you may say, I can't intervene um, because the conditions are not met. Um, in the field, Zartman speaks about ripeness theory. Um, or you may say, I have to intervene because of your commitment to certain values, right? Uh, your commitment is maybe that you say, we can't have people dying from war. We have to protect those people. So you intervene. It's a 50-50 chance. Here again, preparation can help you understand Mary Anderson's do no harm concept. When is it that you might exacerbate the conflict even more so? Um, but it's sometimes very tautological. Only in the aftermath will you know this was a good intervention or it was not such a good intervention. So you have to have also a bit of a of good luck, of 50% of luck going into intervention and, and hoping that preparation, proper implementation, good team management, and your, your instincts will lead you to the right way. Wow, so good management, people skills, and luck. You mentioned something else earlier on that I remember other mediators and myself experiencing too, is the complexity of dealing with other mediators. So not only do you have to deal with all of the parties, the m multiple parties, very complex for the conflict, but now you're saying that when you hit the ground, you may find there are eight other mediators there who also think they have the authority. How do you work that out? Because wh do you assume or do you have the overarching authority to them? Because what you don't want to do, of course, is work at odds with one another. That's a very good point. Um, you will see, for example, in the National Handbook, uh, it, it focused on the Sudan mediations and how one of the key issues was the, the lack of coordination between the different mediators and their strategies, which brought also to an end the negotiations or the other sides, opposing sides, knew how to leverage on that, um, on that gap. Um, I think you have to, from, from, from a formal point of view, if you are coming in, let's say, 
with a mandate through an international organization or body such as the UN, uh, you do have a stronger mandate um, because it's given to you by the UN Security Council and as a you know guarantor for peace and security in the world, there's no higher authority. But at the same time, when you go to the field, uh, whatever formal position you have doesn't count. And then there are other things that count. I remember in the beginning, there were some activities where I came in and people thought I was, you know, they they behaved as if I was a senior intern <laughs> and because I didn't have the gray, the gray hair. You know, it might be now different, of course, but uh, y what I'm trying to say is you have to be diplomatic and tactful about mm -hmm. how you approach the issues of collaboration and coordination. Um, and that requires you to be sometimes uh, friendly and sometimes you have to be firm. Um, it's very difficult when you enter the space to understand what is the mandate of all these mediators. Sometimes they're very forthcoming. In most cases, they have another agenda um, in, in their back pocket. Um, it's more difficult actually to deal with a, um, a state that steps into the space and acts as a mediator, right? Imagine you have the US stepping in or France stepping in as a mediator, which you find a lot in the field of political mediation, um, big states or soft, you know, states using soft power to then mediate certain um, um, agreements to their advantages. Um, these are the most trickiest candidates to work for because you never also understand what is the foreign policy strategy behind their, mm -hmm. their actions. It is easier to deal then with, let's say, insider mediators from the ground, from the communities, from the bottom-up or NGOs, because they're rather already geared towards collaboration synergy. But once you have maybe um, states um, that, that mediate in that space, um, you have to have a good relationship to the five permanent members of Security Council because you need their support. So you need the, the gravitas to be able to to move forward. So that's maybe the only way, way, way where you have power as a mediator. Mm -hmm. If you're in domestic mediation, your power derives from your authority. There's a debate between a domestic mediator having, you know, maybe a certain level of neutrality and, and impartiality. Those things don't even play out in the international field. Um, but parties still turn to you in the domestic mediation setting and ask for your, you know, opinion. They may not say it so, but you, that's how it works. In the international field, it's not like that. You have virtually no power. You may have a strong mandate, but again, your formal authority doesn't count. So the only power you have is to build and form coalitions. So you have to have a good network. You have to have a good in buy-in with donor community, with embassies, uh, and with certain key stakeholders in, in the network of, of peace agents. Um, and that is where it goes back to you know good management skills. You have to understand the network, you have to understand anything around network theory and how to build up these different uh, spoken hubs and, and nodes. So whenever you need the parties to move forward or you have to incentivize a certain party or maybe use some carrots and sticks on another party, you don't do it yourself. You use the power of the other mediators that step into the space. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's, very, it's sometimes very, very difficult to distinguish, uh, you know, are they playing with genuine uh, means to to reach an agreement or are they just playing an external role? And you find in many s situations, if you go throughout the African countries, um, if you ask them what are the biggest challenges to outcomes that are mediated, are they all say external influences? Wow, <clears throat> interesting. So um, you also have to think on your feet because you're getting so much information coming at you so quickly that you have to process that. 
So maybe this is a good time for you to tell a story or two about an, <clears throat> an experience you had in the field. It could have worked well. It may not have worked well. Something you found challenging and something you feel comfortable sharing without breaking confidentiality. Sure. So I was involved in the 2005-2006 Nuba Mountains uh, negotiations, and I was assigned part of a um, ceasefire agreement um, to be um, hashed out between uh, the two warring factions, the, the Nuer and the Dinkas. And um, these settings usually involve a range of, of workshops or where you sit with the parties and you, you try to share with them what the ceasefire looks like. They don't usually know what it looks like. Um, so you, you try to have what we, you know problem-solving workshops um, around this idea. And uh, we happen to have um, the, set, the session, the two tribes were in the room, uh, there was security outside, um, I did a, a mistake that I put my own uh, table uh, in the corner of the room, further away from the door, and um, and I was busy with two parties and two people about something, and then there was a brawl uh, happening in the room, and all of a sudden I found myself cornered in the in the in the in the far end of the room with two very tall and huge uh, uh, warriors cornering me. But nothing happened to me, and then there was a big fight taking place in the room. Um, I, I heard some scuffling outside. I knew security was about to step in. Others were trying to block the room. And then all of a sudden, and I didn't know what to do, and I thought, for me, what's always interesting is actually conflict when it breaks out, because I, that's where I get my last bits of information. Um, I knew nothing would happen to me. I knew, I knew that. But I was concerned about security overall and what kind of impression it would, it would make. As I was cornered there, there was an, an older man who stepped forward in front of the, of the room. And then he looks at me and he turns to the room and all of a sudden the room starts to calm down. And he turns to me and then apologizes for the behaviors of his uh, countrymen. And he says, uh, we're not used to you know, have a constructive dialogue. We're used to a culture of violence. Um, so please share with us how we can come up with a solution in a constructive way. Wow. And that's it. Such a that big behavioral it. change. Yeah. Yes. Um, for me, it was interesting because this kind of behavior did repeat itself a few times throughout my time in the field, and I've I've worked on Sudan between 2005 and 2014, and every time I met this type of behavior, uh, which for me is interesting because I don't think that as mediators in the field we are actually trained properly to deal with this new phenomenon, what we call cultural violence. We leave it up to mental health um, uh, practitioners after the the peace agreement, but we have those those folks sitting at the mediation table. Uh, so I think there is much more mental health paradigms that need to come in into the fore. And what was it about that situation that made you feel safe? Because nothing about it felt safe, right? So was it a sixth sense? Did you know the people? Like, what was it that gave you that sense it was of a, It was a sixth sense. I would say it's a com it was a combination of a sixth sense because you know, I've been in the military before and I've been in situations like that before. And I could feel it was not turning against me. Uh, at the same time, in those situations, interesting enough, you are still a um, outsider. Um, there were other situations, other colleagues, which I, I've heard of, and they were unfortunately inside a mediator. So they came from either one or the other tribe, and they found themselves in very difficult situations because they were perceived as taken aside. Mm. But I always, I think that's one of the, there are always pros and cons, right, if you're, for example, biracial. But I think there was always my my forte that uh, because nobody knew how to which role to assign you 
I was always a bit outside of everything. So you, you can be a friend of everybody and a foe of everybody. So mm-hmm. you're like in between, so that's that's good. So they leave you outside, they leave you alone actually. They, they showcase what they stand for, but I've never felt physical violence or insecurity uh, against me. Of course I protect myself and you know, mm-hmm. it goes into preparation and everything. There were no weapons in the room. They could have used the chairs as weapons, but all right. Granted. Oh, that's just a chair, right? And that's what my lessons learned, right? <laughs> that I did not, I shouldn't have moved my, my myself too far away from from the door. But uh, would you have left? No, I wouldn't have left. Yeah. I realized that I can, I'm able to stay for the longest time possible in such an environment because I, I really take a lot of that last bit of information. Because then I could see in the room how the attention shifted. Mm-hmm. Who, were, who were the informal leaders? And it's, those are the ones I have to reach out to. Um, and I sh- could see through nonverbal cues um, who gave away that kind of authority. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you mentioned something in there that um, one of the elders who came up and said, um, "We're accustomed to the violence, <coughs> excuse me, but not um, the ceasefire. We need to learn." And I was going to ask a question also that um, how can you tell as you're mediating if an agreement that the parties agree to might work that it will be durable how can you what do you look for in those kind of agreements there are two things that are important for me is that the parties arrive into the any type of agreement whether it's a ceasefire or a comprehensive agreement with a certain type of political formula they need to have an idea of what's going to happen after the peace agreement some kind of political agenda whatever it is but they have to have this idea um, whether it's democratizing the space, redistributing wealth, something like that. If they don't have that, usually I'm very, very uh, uh, critical about the activity, and I usually also advise uh, then the special envoys not to run any mediation, but to wait it out a bit longer and to work on the parties until they have that. And the second thing where I feel that an agreement would be on the good track is the social conduct that parties exhibit during the mediation sessions, the way they speak to one another, um, the way they prefer, you know, confidence building measures over sanctions, uh, the way they open up their minds towards um, symbols of peace, rituals. Um, so because I've, I've, I've seen a few times where um, this type of social conduct has actually proven to be quite um, contributive to you know, transitional justice agreements, uh, social justice agreements, procedural justice. And by the way, Daniel Druckmann, in his research, shows the same uh, kind of kind of uh, result. It's, you know, social conduct is key for uh, procedural justice to happen. So um, when I see that taking place, those two things, and I know the agreement will be on a good track. There might be hiccups, but it's on a good track. When they bring in language of inclusion, when they bring in uh, language of we have to bring in the minorities, not just at the end of the peacemaking process, but when the peacemaking takes place. Um, when the parties themselves you know, bring in uh, gender teams, uh, which you try to argue for, not just to have the quota of, of women, uh, but in terms of equality of voices and parity of voices, it's important to have also two gen- the, the two genders represented. Um, so these things I'm looking for, type of social conduct that they exhibit, the type of language they use that is geared towards nonviolent behavior and constructive problem solving, uh, and again, 
uh, a clear political formula that exists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you advise on this about how to put the teams together? Who should be at the table? Is that part of your conflict analysis? Yes. So you know, you 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 run your analysis. You look at your not just analysis, but you also look at conflict sensitive indicators. So the relationship between the parties, uh, the returns they have if they get something, the cost and benefit analysis of the parties. Um, the drivers of conflict, what enables conflict, what the role of media, uh, social media, bloggers, and all those things. I advise, but again, as an advisor, the good thing is you can advise and nobody listens to your advice. Mm -hmm. And other times, and uh, senior mediators also take your advice. So it's also part of your job to educate top mediators because yeah. although they're called high-level mediators, they don't have a mediation background. They're usually top diplomats or former ambassadors that because of their pedigree and networks are being used. Uh, but you have to advise them on process uh, considerations and uh, and uh, how to implement uh, the peace process. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so another question I have is, what do you think, you mentioned process, what do you think are critical factors for successful processes during a mediation? Well, you need to, you need to be able to link process, context, and outcome. Um, so far in, in mediation negotiation research, we have shown we have seen that we have a, a process, which are the antecedents to the process, everything in preparation to setting up the room, to the topics, the pre-talks, and outcome. But I've realized that as we are more and more geared towards peace operations, hybrid warfare, that context plays a big role. Uh, that's what I try to talk, cover in my other book uh, on political mediation, modern conflict resolution, is the role of culture. Uh, the place of hybrid cultures um, and uh, identity in uh, in uh, in conflict, mm, because as mediators we're not really using those terms and we're not really trained to understand cu culture is a is a mannerism, but in many settings uh, culture is everything. Uh, the way you build up trust to the other sides, trust to the co-negotiators. Um, so you need to take into account those contextual indicators as well. The role of uh, gender, the role of traditional uh, mechanisms to resolve conflict and to bring them and pull them to front load the media activity at the peacemaking part. Most of it comes usually in peace building activity. But that's where you also have a deconnect or disconnect between the peacemaking at the high level and then the, the bottom up approaches to peace, uh, peace building. There's no real connection between those two. And so I try to uh, front load by saying well, there's a certain cultural elements here that are very, very important and key to, to look into. So we need to front load that into the contextual part and understand the role of, of actors, the role of, of cultures, of rituals, of sacred values, um, the role of territory and power, and how that plays out in the context of this conflict. So you started to go towards your other books. I'm curious, can you just differentiate the two books so people have an idea, mention the names again, and what Sh each is about? Sure. So the International Mediator Handbook is much more uh, a popular approach to mediation. It talks a little bit in the beginning about mediation theory, presents five phases of mediation, and I would say two-thirds is about an in-depth case study on Sudan mediations. And I think that's the biggest um, added value to the, to the handbook, that you have a step-by-step -step approach. I even had somebody from uh, who is uh, doing some mediation in Syria saying this is a very good handbook I can use for the field. So that's great. Um, I have a few students that also bought the book and said, Aha, now we have a better understanding on how complex it is and what kind of discussion we can have moving forward. So that was just really to buy, to, to, to buy me an entry point in saying let's, pr let's have a provocative discussion about mediation, what it means, and, and in a new hybrid warfare environment. 
Whereas the other book, uh, which is called uh, Political Mediation and Modern Conflict Resolution, Emerging Research and Opportunities, uh, published by IGI Global, is much more of a um, academic um, helicopter overview about where mediation comes from. And here again, I, I emphasize the role of culture and context. So I bring a lot of communication theory, cultural theory, even race theory um, that, that um, seeps into mediation research. Um, and I finished the handbook also so with five case studies um, that start in the early 2000s and end with the latest um, political upheaval in the Gambia, also showing the increasing degree of complexity on how many mediators and cultures are dealing with, not just the cultures of um, the, the locals, but also the, the mediator also brings a culture, a certain bias. So I try to uncover this bias as well in this handbook, which is uh, in this book, which is much more geared towards um, academia. Mm, that's great because we do a lot of work in the program on who am I and self-awareness and the role of a mediator, the role of a negotiator and so on because we're not not noticed. We do make a difference. We do have an impact. That's correct. Um, you know, sometimes as mediators we come in and think that others need our help. And so there's always this underlying subconscious bias of maybe uh, the other or the inferior or uh, the ones who do not have, but they do have. So it's our role to be open about those biases, recognize those biases, and, and bring whoever that is into the conversation. And that's why I might, I'm, I'm moving a bit away from looking at mediation as a linear activity that leads to an agreement or to settlement, and rather that it's a new form that opens up a safe space for conversations to be had, even at the political level. Great. So in closing, what are s it's been a great conversation. What are some thoughts you'd like to leave us with to make sure we notice? about mediation? Yeah, I think mediation is an interesting activity. It is not a um, panacea for peace. Um, there are many, many more activities you can do, but definitely if you try to focus on dialogue as the key, as the key ingredient to mediation, and therefore use mediation as a tool not just to bring parties together to overcome their differences, but also as a mechanism to rally support around parties' uh, grievances, and to resolve those grievances and move the conflict forward, I think we have something something new out there. Um, a lot of good research has been done on mediation, also on international mediation, but I think there's still a gap between whatever um, the academia thinks that mediation is, which is a science, and then what mediators do, which we feel sometimes is still an art. Um, and I've been myself going back and forth. Is it a science? Is it art? Is it both? It's both, yeah. So most likely it's going to be both, um, but... I think there's a new art form coming out and it's going to be mediation within the hybrid warfare environment. And we have plenty of these things happening with Syria, Yemen, and you can see that we have not come up with the right solutions because we have a very old understanding of mediation that is rooted in you know binaries, whereas now yeah. we have a multidimensional world. So I hope that these two books will contribute to the discussion of opening up the mediation space to deal with those issues. Thank you so much. So for those of you, once again, it's Jose Pascal de Rocha, D-A-R-O-C-H-A, if you want to look for his books. And I'm Beth Fishiyoshida. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye now. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway.